listening to God's spirit, learning from him, letting him touch our hearts, speak to us from the words that uh, are recorded by Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, uh, a historical book about the growth of the early church and the spread of the gospel in the Mediterranean area. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Lord, we are the faith of the empty grave. We are the faith of the atoning cross. We are the faith of the risen Lord. We look to you now. We ask that you would open our hearts, speak to us in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls. Speak faith into our hearts. Speak obedience to us. Speak gratefulness to us that we may speak it back to you and to one another. Speak to us now from Acts 16, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, verse 13. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. Uh, last week we saw Paul and his companions at the riverside. They met some women there praying, uh, and uh, they shared Jesus with them, and uh, a number of them became, became followers of Jesus like right away, right there at the riverside. They baptized them, and, and, uh, and a new church was born in, in Philippi. So wouldn't you know it, Satan strikes back. We'll read about that right now. Starting in verse 13, just reviewing a little bit from last week. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Stop there for now. We'll go back over the chapter and draw a few, uh, ob make a few observations about what's going on here, and then we'll uh, extract a few lessons from the from the passage as well for us to hopefully incorporate into our lives and and shape us as we follow Christ. Uh, number one, verse thirteen on the Sabbath. Let's see. Uh, okay, got that. <coughs> They had gone to the place of prayer that one day. Now in verse 16, he says, Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. 
Notice it was Paul and his friends' habit to go to the place of prayer. He says once when we were going to the place of prayer, implying that they had gone many times. Uh, and we'll see uh, in the next few sentences that they, in fact, did go many times. Prayer was their habit. It was a routine in their life. It was a commitment that they made. It was indispensable to the spread of the gospel. And so Paul and his companions were very committed and devoted to prayer, and they kept going back to that place by the riverside. Do you have a habit of prayer? Uh, where is your riverside that you go to to spend time with God and pray? <clears throat> Some days I pray better than others. Some days it's, it's uh, pretty brief. Other days uh, uh, you have a good time of prayer. Uh, some days, uh, and, and always, it's not just one time in my day that I pray, but I pray in the morning, and then prayer happens also at other times in shorter bursts through my, through my day. But uh, we, And I don't stand here as a prayer giant. I'm a struggler just like you, but I'm, I'm, I'm sold on prayer. I think it's important, and I think our church needs to be sold on prayer as well. That's the source of our power. It's the source of our intimacy with God. And we learn each other, other's hearts as we hear each other pray together. Some of our praying you do privately, of course. Some of what we do together uh, collectively in a small group, etc. I'm a NFL fan, and this is a big weekend. Not the Super Bowl. This, this weekend's maybe even better. There's two good games going on tonight. <coughs> I can see some of you rolling your holy eyes. <coughs> so I'm thinking all week, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out to my cousin John's Sunday evening and, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll watch Cincinnati visit Kansas City. And uh, we'll eat chips and drink pop and be irresponsible for about three hours. <coughs> then I opened the e-bulletin on Friday. And I saw that uh, tonight at 7, there's an online prayer time for the youth. And I thought, gulp. Wish I hadn't seen that. <laughs> Kylie Galt, what's, what's she doing getting us praying for the youth? <laughs> and I felt instant conviction. John, what's more important? And I have preached to our Monday night prayer group, and they've preached it back. We need to pray for our youth. Tonight is... Tonight is the time to do it. I mean, there'll be other times. Oh, yes, we can always say, I'll skip prayer tonight because there'll be other times. But next time, there'll be another time and another time. So I'm going to prayer tonight, not as a hero, but because I believe in it. And I think Joe Burroughs can handle things on his own without me anyhow. <laughs> I heard nothing. Verse 17 This woman is calling out a strange thing. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. What's wrong with that? We'll come back to that later. Verse 18. It says uh, she kept this up for many days. So I assume from that that for many days they kept going to the riverside. Like I said, their habit. Many days, back to the river, back to the river, back to prayer. And this woman kept popping out of somewhere and, and yelling at them and saying these lines... Uh, and everybody around was getting kind of freaked out about it. And Paul says, in ver says, finally, Paul became so troubled, quote, unquote, that he turned around and he spoke to the spirit. And 
cast it out. What troubles you? You listen to the news, do you get troubled? Do you have friends who are struggling or, you know, struggling maybe with sin or compromise or doubt or something? Does that trouble you? Sometimes I tell our prayer group on Monday night, you got to pray mad. Like, you kind of flat. What are you mad about? What's Satan doing in this world that stirs you up and makes you troubled? Pray there. Start right there. Don't pray some lukewarm prayer that you don't have to leave in anyhow. What stirs you? What troubles you? What kicks you into action? That's where you can start to pray. I mean, don't be this angry, crazy person when you pray, but, but I'm asking you what troubles you like Paul that, that triggers you into action. There are a lot of troubling things in the world and even in the church these days, and we need to listen to the Spirit of God and be observant and act accordingly. Verse 19, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone. Let's stop right there. Notice the phrase, the owners of this slave girl. That's unbelievable. These men, I'm assuming they were men, were greedy because it was all about money. And they were using this girl and the apparent gift that she had, given by a spirit (coughs) to tell the future, They were using her to make money for themselves. They were impoverishing her to make themselves rich. They were greedy and they were pimps. A pimp is someone who uses someone else, be it sexually or some other way, to make money for yourself. How unlike our Lord, who impoverished himself to make us rich. Just think about that. If that's all you get out of this morning. Bless him and worship him for the the Savior that he is to us. Some lessons to learn from this story now. First of all, the devil and his demons, and that was what was possessing this young girl. The devil and his demons are not fictitious. They are real. Uh, We have this image in a culture of the devil wearing a red suit with horns and a forked tail and a pitchfork. That is so, so misleading, false, Just cast it out right now. The devil is very real. Jesus believed in the devil. That's enough for me. He not only believed in him, he cast out demons and he faced the devil in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting and, please note, defeated him completely on that occasion. Paul believed in the devil and he warned his fellow believers frequently about, quote, rulers, authorities, powers, rulers of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul was very alert to the presence and the work of the devil, and so should we be. Peter believed in the devil, and he spoke of him as a roaring lion seeking to devour you Christians. The apostle Paul, sorry, the apostle John warned us of his reality in the gospel of John, and in his first letter of John, and multiple times in Revelation, also written by John, the devil was very real to these warriors for Christ in the ancient world. James urged us to resist the devil, and Jude also spoke of the devil. How dare I doubt when such great lights in the Christian faith believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that we have an enemy and we need to pay attention. Second lesson, 
just about a very quick review of some of Satan's character qualities and tactics. Matthew 4, this is going to come at you fast, so listen fast. <clears throat> Matthew 4, 3, he came to Jesus as, quote, the tempter. Matthew 13, 19, Jesus said he snatches up the seeds of the word that are sown in people's hearts, follows around and snatches them up so they don't take root in people's hearts. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 4, 4, he blinds the minds of the unbelievers, blinding them to the beauty and the glory in the person of Christ. 1 Peter 5, 8, he's spoken of as our adversary, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is interesting. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15, Paul says he appears as an angel of light. All kinds of guises, right? Roaring lion, angel of light. Oh, wow, this is interesting. Yeah, appearing harmless and helpful, <coughs> but aiming only to take us down. John chapter 8, 44, Jesus spoke of him, calling him a murderer and a liar by nature. Isaiah 14, 12 describes some creature which we assume to be Satan before his fall, <clears throat> and he was ambitious for power and domination, saying, quote, I will make myself like the Most High. Ephesians 6.11, Paul spoke of the schemes of the devil. Schemes come from intelligence. <coughs> and uh, he is cunning, deceitful, and tricky. Genesis 3, 1 to 5, that famous passage where Satan tempts Adam and Eve in the garden, we see him as crafty. In fact, he's described as being more crafty than all the other created creatures. We see him lying. We see his goal was to cast into doubt God's goodness and to lead Adam and Eve astray from God and to disobey God, knowing that this would break the intimacy between them and God. Ezekiel 28, 12 to 15, another description <coughs> displaying Lucifer as being proud and vain and stunningly beautiful before he fell. Some of the forms that he appears in, Genesis 3, appears as a serpent. 1 Peter 5, described as a roaring lion. 2 Corinthians 11, as we said, an angel of light. And in Revelation 12, a terrible dragon. His objective. Satan does not try to destroy you or take from you your salvation because he can't. So he seeks to neutralize you and even to use you for his own purposes, to use you to work counter to the purposes of God in this world. <clears throat> he cannot render you dead, but he can render you ineffective. He will sow seeds just sprinkling them into your life and into your thoughts. Seeds of fear, seeds of doubt, and of envy, seeds of lust, and malice, and selfishness, and discouragement, and disobedience, and compromise, etc. But you know, all of those ugly fruits I just described, they all grow from a single root. A common and shared taproot is lies. 
as Jesus said, he's the father of lies, a liar by nature. For example, <clears throat> sometimes we have doubts, but those doubts come from a deeper root of a lie, the lie being God is withholding good from you, or I don't think there really is a God. Listen to all the other experts in this world. Or, as he blatantly said to Eve, you won't die. When God had said, you will, if you touch that fruit. Lust or sexual immorality, the fruit, but the root is a lie. Do this and it will bring you pleasure. Yes, and make your life better. Oh, yes, you deserve this. Uh, fear is the fruit. A lie is the root. Always based, uh, or sorry, uh, you should be fe fear. You should be afraid because God won't take care of you. You should be afraid because this thing is bigger than you can handle. That's the lie. Scripture says otherwise. We need to be well saturated in God's truth. And then there's discouragement. Maybe this is the one that attacks more Christians than any other. And the fruit of discouragement is always rooted in a lie. All discouragement, I'll say as a blanket statement, comes from believing some lie. For example, I'll never be able to do this. Or there's no hope. I can never change. Things are only going to get worse. These are all lies. God's not listening to my prayers. The Christian life is too hard. God could never forgive what I've just done. That's a lie. Lies can only be countered with truth. And we must learn and know and trust the great truths of the Christian faith. Are you discouraged today about something? Do the work to identify the lie that you have come to believe and counter it with God's truth. Notice the crafty tactic of the demon in our story today. He was employing in the passage, <clears throat> following Paul and his friends as they went to the river and the woman was crying out, says very loudly, shouting, making quite a scene. It must have been quite a disturbing thing as they maybe walked through the marketplace, etc. And as we noted, her, um, her cry was, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. That's absolutely true. She wasn't calling out a lie. She was calling out the truth. What's so crafty about it? Well, it's because she was, so, she was such a disturbing figure. She was possessed by an evil spirit, and, and, and she was crying out and making a scene in the marketplace, and so she was saying something true about Paul and his friends. And so if, I, I guess what I'm saying is, by associating a true statement with a troubled and strange woman who was shouting and making a scene in the marketplace, the net effect was stay away from those guys. If she's supporting them, stay away from them because she's weird. You, you get it? Does that make sense? So imagine after you heard this woman and saw this scene and then you meet the Apostle Paul uh, an hour or so later and Paul says, yeah, yeah, I've got a message for you from God about the way of salvation. You'd go... <laughs> I got to get home. Sorry, I'm late for supper. You, you would want to, it would undermine and discredit what Paul and the brothers were all about because of this woman's association with them. Very crafty. This went on, it says, for several days. Lesson number four. A word about this poor, unfortunate slave girl. <clears throat> she was not the enemy. 
She might have been possessed through no fault of her own. She found herself in possession of a, of a spirit, spiritual, spirit-given gift of fortune-telling, whether she really could tell the future or whether she could put on a good show, I don't know. She was a victim on three, on three fronts. First of all, she was a victim of an unwelcome demon inside of her, controlling her, using her, disgracing her, ripping her humanity away from her. Had she been involved in the occult? I don't know. We're not told anything. All we know is that she is now a victim of this unclean spirit. Number two, she was a victim of her human controllers and handlers. Uh, the word actually is her owners. Can you imagine? They owned her. They used her to make money. These men, as I said, were greedy and they were pimps and she was a victim of their evilness. Thirdly, she was a victim of a system that was evil and corrupt. Some people say of our world <clears throat> that people are basically good and people are innocent and it's the system that makes them evil. There's a debate that goes on between people. It's the system's fault. We need to change the system. We need to reform the system. And they go into politics and sociology and etc. to try to reform the system. Thinking that's the way of salvation. Scripture says that we all have sinned and we have to take responsibility for our sins and personally come to repent before God and be saved through Christ and not to blame it all on the system. But there is a system. We live in a system. This woman lived in a system, and it was evil. It was a system that tolerated men owning a woman and making money off of her, and the same stuff happens in our world today. There are still pimps in the world today. There is a, our system is marked, though there are many wonderful things for which I'm thankful in our society. It is riddled with this system of evil, of materialism and greed and immorality and, and ungodliness and, and power and ego and all of these things saturate. The, there is a system, all right. So we as Christians, we preach to the individual and call them to repentance in Christ. That's called the evangelistic ministry. And we work to, to challenge the system, and that's a prophetic ministry. That is wrong. Sometimes we have to say, we're called to both. There is a system. This woman was a victim of a system in her day. And it's not either or, it's both and. Christ calls us, though, as a beginning place. Come to him and be saved. This woman, though not blameless, was caught in a terrible system. <clears throat> we don't know what became of her, do we? Here's my hope. I like to speculate on these things. My hope is that she joined the little church there in Philippi. And she became a Christ follower. She might have wondered, after these guys discarded her and she's sitting by the side of the road, she might have wondered, what just happened? I would like to imagine that an older woman named Lydia slipped up beside her 
and said, sweetheart, let me take you home and clean you up and feed you. I have something very important and very wonderful to tell you. You must have some questions. That's the evangelistic ministry. Let's talk for a minute about the name of Jesus. <clears throat> we are told that Paul, as he became so annoyed, turned around and said to the spirit, not to the woman, but to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I encourage you to come out of here. Sorry, I command you. <laughs> Can't even read my notes. Paul didn't encourage him. He commanded him to come out of her, and at that moment, the spirit left her. A sudden and dramatic exorcism happened right on the side of the road, and uh, there, there was no contest. Paul, uh, I don't know, he was such a godly man that the spirit said, I give up, and left. Just a thought here about Paul using the name of Jesus to confront the spirit. <clears throat> The name of Jesus and praying in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for this, that, and the other thing in the name of Jesus. I do it. We all tack it on to the end of our prayer, right? Sort of thinking that, that makes my prayer like perfect. That'll get, my, get me answers. But the name of Jesus phrase is not a magic phrase. It's not an incantation baptized in the name of Jesus. Uh, it's not the Christian version of abracadabra. You don't have to say it at the end of every prayer. No, it doesn't. I mean, fine, that's fine. It's okay, but let's, let's just think about it for a minute. The name of Jesus represents all that Jesus Christ was and is and evermore will be. It represents the sum total of his infinite greatness, of his perfect beauty. It represents his heart of love, his hand of justice that represents his atoning death on the cross which completely satisfied the requirements of his righteous father it represents an empty grave triumphing over death it represents his promise to return and his ultimate though it hasn't happened yet it's written down his absolute vanquishing of satan and his demons someday that's what the name of jesus represents everything about jesus and Remember that as we pray in the name of Jesus. It's possible that some people might uh, try to kind of use the name of Jesus, but they don't even know him. Or at least they're a Christian who's walking in compromise and all of a sudden they're in trouble and they're praying in the name of Jesus. I, I get a real kick out of a story in Acts 19. Maybe I shouldn't, but uh, <clears throat> Paul was in Ephesus, and amazing things were happening, miracles. He was casting out unclean spirits, and there were these uh, seven sons of a Jewish priest, and they were called the seven sons of Siva. You can read about it later in Acts 19. The seven sons of Siva. They weren't Christians, but they thought they had a, 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 an upcoming uh, exorcism ministry. And then they heard about Paul and what success he had casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they said, hey, let's us try that. So they confronted a demon, uh, a demon-possessed man. And they said, uh, the, uh, let me get the phrase right here. <clears throat> they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out of him. So the demon looks at them. The man looks at them, who's possessed by the demon. 
And he says this. I know about Jesus, and I know about Paul. But who are you? You don't find that a little funny? <laughs> I remember once reading a, 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 a little booklet called No One in Hell. And the author was pointing out that hell knows about Jesus, and hell even knew about Paul. Are you no one in hell? For the right reasons? Anyway, the demon-possessed man leaped on the seven sons of Siva, beat them to a pulp, tore off all their clothes, and they fled from the house naked, it says. But it was such a terrifying event that it stirred the whole city. It troubled the city of Ephesus, and a massive revival broke out even further after that event. People began confessing their sins and turning away from satanic things in droves. It's amazing. We've got to move on. There's something worse than a demon attack. You might think, oh, nothing worse than that. <clears throat> a demon confrontation or attack is very visible, very dramatic. <clears throat> but if you confront one somehow in your life, it might wake you up. And it might make you pray. And it might cause you to start reading your Bible seriously and hanging out with Christians more because you know you need their help and their encouragement. And from Satan's perspective, this would be a disaster. So, I think in the vast majority of cases, he works on people quietly, imperceptibly, subtly, gradually, and very, very, very patiently. And therein lies a great danger. <clears throat> He'll slowly but surely take you down and blow out your light. And you won't even know it's happening. <clears throat> and that's worse than confronting a demon and being awakened. Rather being lulled to sleep than being gradually taken down and nullified. He'll soon have you living a compromised life. Being, living kind of cohabiting with sin. Yeah, I know I shouldn't do this, but eh, it's not hurting anybody. And uh, nothing, you know, I haven't been struck by lightning the last couple times, you know. And so, and so you begin to just tolerate and cohabit with sins in your life rather than taking it seriously. <coughs> A possessed person is controlled by the enemy. But you or me, though we're not possessed, we can be controlled in other ways. The puppet master is pulling the strings of your life and you don't even realize it. My friend, please hear and heed the words of Jesus, or sorry, of James, who said, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. <clears throat> you can't fight the devil on your own. We must draw near to God. The devil is no match for Jesus. Or the words of Peter, <clears throat> who said, be alert and a sober mind, and he meant it. The words of Jesus in the garden, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Or the words of Jesus in Revelation to the church of Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, of alive, but you are dead. Wake up, he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. <coughs> 
living the Christian life <coughs> and resisting the devil is an is a ongoing process. And we're constantly slipping one way or the other. I'm constantly making corrections to my thinking. You know, I got bad thought here, proud thought here, lustful thought there, greedy thought here, selfish thought here. It's happening all the time. It's happening to all of us. <coughs> and living a godly Christian life is kind of like driving a car. You're, you're, all, all the, all the, I, I'm always slipping this way, slipping that way, as I said, in the Christian life, and, and we need to be making corrections, and you say, man, that sounds exhausting. Well, it's no more exhausting than driving a car, because driving a car is, is all about staying out of the ditch, right? <coughs> and so you're, you're always, as you drive down the highway, the car drifts to the right, you correct. It drifts to, into the other lane, you correct, and you're constantly correcting the car slowly drifting in the wrong direction. It's not exhausting. You get tired at the end of a day of driving, but you can do it. And living the Christian life is the same way. Just stay alert. You fall asleep in the car, you're dead. Stay alert and keep making those little corrections as you go on through life in the grace of the Lord. I end on a sober note. Uh, <clears throat> over the past three to five years, there have been quite a few. I could name a dozen names of prominent Christians in ministry, either pastors or leaders of prominent ministries who have, who, who have fallen and are not in ministry anymore. <clears throat> Every time I would read about one, I must confess, I would shake my head and say something like, how could he? How could he do that? Some of the situations were like sexual immorality or adultery. Some of them had to do with ego and power struggles. A couple of months ago, I was sitting thinking about this and thinking over some of these individuals. And I, I, I was thinking, I've, I've shaken the hand and spoken to three or four of them. I wouldn't say I know them, but I've, I've met them somehow, maybe after a seminar or after a conference or something. And uh, I was thinking about some of them and thinking how wrong I was to think that thought. How could he do that? They're fallen soldiers. Many of them have great ministries. They spoke to prime ministers and they spoke at the United Nations, and they spoke to important people, and they were important in the cause of the gospel. In our, in our culture, in our day, they spoke to large numbers of people in churches. They helped build many disciples. They spoke the word of God in truth, and now they're fallen away with my indignation. What about my sorrow? What about the warning that lies there for all of us Christians? Are they, those leaders, reflections of what's going on in the whole church? No, is, is the, does the church affect them or do they affect the church or is it a bit of everything? I don't know, but let us be warned. Prowling about like a roaring lion. Oh, so patient. Causing us to compromise. It is such an important lesson for us today. When you go home today, you will probably not be confronted by a demon, <coughs> but you will be influenced by the serpent. 
in his subtleness and his craftiness. Stay alert. Keep your eyes on Jesus, your nose in the truth, and keep your hands on the wheel. Next week, Paul and his friends get thrown into jail. You'll be surprised how it all turns out. It's awesome. <clears throat> the devil will be thwarted again. Let's pray. Lord, more than once you've called us little children. May we do what little children instinctively do so well. When they sense danger, they reach out for daddy or mommy's hand. May we be blessed this week with the feel of your strong hand in ours.